Welcome to the Better Clinician Podcast with myself, Ben Cormack, and also Adam Meekins. The Better Clinician Project brings you high-quality education at a ridiculously low price. This podcast will bring you topics that are relevant to modern clinical practice, all done with a bit of fun and humour. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. So, BCPers, welcome back to another. Are you ready, Mr. Meekins? Thoughtful Thursday. I want to see you more pensive than that. I want to see intense thought from you. I will. Uh, I'll put my fingers on my forehead as if I'm doing some sort of deep mind. <laughs> investigation trick or something yes i'm ready for it mate i'm ready for this one let's good go man. good man good man so um three good questions um again this month and i like that from the bcp as they seem to come up uh with some really interesting questions and the first one is from our our bcp over there in the united states um i don't think we have that many do we uh usa based um no members but we seem to appeal more to the uh, the english and the uh, scandinavians and the europeans americans don't really like us it must be the accents i reckon mate yeah and i thought it would be you know i thought they'd be uh much more into us than that with these british accents but you know i don't know whether the whole Meghan markle thing has ruined it or <laughs> <laughs> yeah us uh, anglo relationships might be a bit more strained than they were recently yes. i know i know I, I i blame the royal family yeah i do as well yeah yeah but um really simply the crux of andrew's question was um when you graduated from um school did you see yourself doing what you're doing today practicing as you're practicing and are you happy with the direction that you've headed in it's a great question and the simple answer is no i didn't think i would be doing what i'm doing now as a physiotherapist and yes i am very happy with the way things are going still room for improvement but i have seen a quite a big shift in the last definitely last 10 years in the way that uh, practice has been evolving in physiotherapy and i'm enjoying the process and uh, not to blow my own trumpet i think i'm a little bit ahead of the curve and i have been for a few years in the way that i've been uh, practicing now but yeah no i never thought in a million years that you know to be a physiotherapist i would be mostly giving people reassurance education information advice telling people it's okay to carry on what they're doing they don't need to come back and see me they don't need any magic fixing or curing time is the best healer um i never thought that would be my main role as a physiotherapist which it is pretty much now i thought very much the way i was taught that i needed to get in there and do stuff to help people feel better yeah, so so when you back in the mists of time, when penny farthings still were riding along the streets, pterodactyls were swooping yeah. down in the skies. There, there was the pea super where the where the uh, coal burning fires were polluting the Victorian streets. Um, you know, back back then, uh, when would it have been? Late nineties for you? Uh, yeah, so I graduated two thousand. Yeah, right. So 
say the turn of the century, not just the turn of the century. We're thinking exactly of. right. Well, it was turn of the century, but not the, <laughs> nine, not the 18th century. Yeah. So, how would you say you you came out? What was your you know what was your way of doing things? What would have been your way of tackling problems? Well, basically, there was a lot of interventions. There was a lot of hands-on poking, pressing, pushing, clicking, rubbing, bouncing up and down on, <laughs> mobilising, manipulating, <laughs> sticking, stabbing, yes. scraping, all, all of that. You know, so it was very much that was what was considered physiotherapy. I mean, it still is, if I'm being honest, a lot, you know, societally-wise. Physio has got this reputation for going to see somebody and getting shit done to you. But, um, yeah, it's changed. So what were some of your gizmos and gadgets? I mean, I think the one that I spent the most time on was obviously therapeutic ultrasound. I remember spending just hours and learning all the different, um, you know, settings and moving the head and all these other things. What kind of gizmos did did you learn? Yeah, I was into a lot of electrotherapy. One of my... uh, Ah. Um, personal tutors at university when I was graduating was um, Tim Watson, Mr. Electrotherapy himself. So he was head of the physio department. So we had a big electrotherapy uh, component to our training. So yeah, ultrasound, low-level laser, pulse yeah. shortwave, yeah. interferential treatments, faradism, all that sort of stuff. We had, had the full run of it. So yeah, there was lots of machines that went buzz, 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 and bing, bing, bing uh, yeah. that we had to use. And and very much, you know, the manual therapies, uh, the manipulations, the myofascial massage, Swedish massage, sports massage, effluage, petrissage, petrissage, (laughs) temperament. So the one I very much Maitland's as well, all the joint stuff as well. So all the, you know, grade ones, twos, threes, fours, and then of the fives, which are the really sexy ones that everybody wanted to learn. And I can remember getting really excited when we were allowed to start considering ourselves to be skilled enough to do grade five manipulations. It was like, yeah, we've made it now. I can do a clicky, clicky, clack, clack. I am a physiotherapist extraordinaire. I remember vividly learning frictions. And I remember just, I just, I just found them, you know, I was just never any good at frictions. In fact, I failed my frictions exam. How um, can you fail frictions? All you got to do is well, rub no, something until it hurts. No, I know, but apparently I wasn't doing it in quite the right frequency or uh, something. I think you had to go really your close. Stroke, your stroke method was off, was it? Was yeah. It and number? I... And I remember vividly in my ultrasound exam, you had to put the ultrasound head in a bath of water, do you remember? So that it showed the um, it showed the waves coming out of the head. Yeah. And you had these funny little long baths that you had to put it in. I don't, I don't know if you remember that. And I put it in the water, and I'd never really noticed whether it turned on. It was just like it, I did it as a matter of, uh, of habit. And the guy went, it's not turned on. <laughs> He said, where are the waves? And I was like, they're there. The waves are there. <laughs> they just weren't. And it was like. What would have been yeah. a really good, funny comeback is you could have turned around and said, yeah, well, it's just as effective when it's turned off as it is when it's turned on. So it don't yeah. matter. Yeah. I, this may have been before some of that research came out, I think. So yeah, I bet it weren't. I bet there were sham control trials 
back in the eighties and the nineties on ultrasound. I'm yeah. sure there must be a few. Well, they never showed them to me, as I recall. <laughs> no. I'd have actually had to go to the library, um, and I didn't. No one wanted to go to the library. That's what's changed a lot as well. How you find information and yes. education as a physiotherapist. So that that has changed massively, as you say. Back in my day, microfiche. You had to go into a library and get these little um, floppy the acetate slides, put them yeah. in a machine that blew it up and magnified yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to scroll through it to find the reference, get the number, and then walk down the library aisle, find the reference number, yeah, the, little, find yeah. the, the paper journal, and go and actually read it. Yeah, so one seven four six five one two or whatever it was in the yeah. I remember. And then it and, wasn't and there. And the, amount, <laughs> the amount that used to put me off of actually having to go and yeah, and but it just put me off from having to go and fact check everything. So I think that very much was something in the early days that I didn't do. I just took people's word for it. You know, I was I was probably less critical and skeptical back then because it was just much harder to do it. It was much harder to go and actually find contravening, contradictory research or find you know try and fact check somebody uh, when they said something. You just had to take their word for it, or you did just take their word for it. But now it's a touch of a button. You're able to sort of see if things are true or truer and correcter and it's much easier to do. So I think yeah. that's a big shift in how I practice now in updating my knowledge and my information as a physiologist. Uh, well, we, we have the opposite problem, don't we? That, that it's the problem is actually of a sifting through all the information rather than finding it. I think the problem then was like, a you know, having information there at the tips of your fingers. Now, we have a flood of information and you have to be, the skill is in being critical, not just finding that information. But just to kind of answer Andrew's question, am I happy with the way that I practice and what I do now? I am. I'm not always sure everyone I work with is. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, that is, that yeah so I'm happy with what I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still, as I said, that societal expectation of what physiotherapy is, it hasn't fully changed you know it's still very much that something can get fixed you press on something you do a magic exercise and it's all cured and fixed and sorted within a couple of weeks and as I said we know that's not the case and it was quite hard to come to terms with that and accept that I was quite disillusioned as a young physiotherapist when I started to realize it isn't quite what I was expecting it to be it's a lot different with regards to outcomes and uh, patient satisfactions and stuff like that it's uh, yeah but imagine if if a if a patient came to you and they'd cut their finger, would they expect you to be able to stroke your finger along their finger and it heals? No, it's a different yeah. but acute pain and you know acute injuries like a, a skin lesion or a broken bone. I just think again, societally wise, I've got a different perception than hundred percent another type of pain that doesn't have any clear mechanism. You know, pain that's unexplained that's come on is sort thought to be, well, it's come on quickly without any clear explanation or reason why, so therefore it should be able to be disappeared and cured quite quickly yeah, without but, any major reason or explanation why. But why is it any different for, you You know, you might not be able to see. It, if it wasn't, you know, apart from the fact, you know, pathophysiology is slightly different to pathology, but, you know, it, even if it was a damage or a rip or a tear of tissue that you couldn't see, it would still take time to heal, wouldn't it? But it just feels like often people, they've been taught that you activate a muscle or you click a joint and it goes away. When that defies how we look at 
other problems such as bone injuries or or uh, you know so so i always find that a bit strange but but there you go what can you do well that's one thing you can guarantee on is humans can have some strange views and opinions a lot of the time mate yeah yeah well yes this is certainly true so we have another question from ben Connolly. And Ben, it's quite an interesting little question here, and we I might address it in a slightly different way. And he's talking about knee extensor strength as a mediator of outcomes. Now, what I think is interesting here is less whether we find that strength is a mediator of outcomes, but maybe a little bit of what mediators actually are. And I think that sometimes we get caught up uh, has the word mediator become a bit of a common phrase that people use that maybe isn't always really, really well de- delineated or understood? Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing is it's not understood. I still don't bloody understand it sometimes. So I think it's uh, it's very easy to use words thinking that you're using them correctly when you might not be. So, you know, we often talk about mediators and moderators of painful problems such as knee OA and again there are some studies that have tried to ascertain what mediates or moderates pain from knee osteoarthritis and uh, as I say it gets a bit confusing so let's uh, try and break it down a mediator first and foremost I think is a variable that tries to explain how or why other variables are related to each other Yes. So I would say, for me, the word mediator is more of a causal variable. It provides a causal link between two different variables. Yeah. So a nice little uh, example I'm going to give is that when you have an injury, we know that the normal physiological response is an inflammatory response with an acute injury. And we know that inflammation is a mediator of pain after an injury. Yeah. So you'd have something classic like PGE2, prostaglandin, which is going to... Adam's rolling his eyes at me for anyone who substance can't see P this. Well, substance P favourite neurotransmitter. Yeah. So would sub, substance P would also be a mediator of pain, wouldn't it? It would just be a different type of inflammatory. It would be a neurogenic rather than, you know, nociceptive related, rather than maybe more tissue related. So it's not a nervous system related mediator. Uh, PGE2 is a tissue based mediator. So mediators, as I say, link two variables together. They can, say, make one variable directly affect another variable. Yes. Whereas a moderator tends to affect the strength of direction between two variables. Yeah, so an example might be that it's let's say you perform manual therapy and you create descending inhibition. Uh, So endogenous chemicals that come down the spinal cord and explode into the body. And what they will do is they will have an effect on the strength of the pain that you feel. Right. So you might have an inflammatory situation going on and that would be the mediator of the pain. A a descending inhibitory hit might create a a moderation of that. So it affects the strength of that pain that you feel by introducing new chemicals into the mix. 
that would be the way that I understand it. So we could say that descending inhibition might be a moderator of pain created by manual therapy, for example. But it's not actually having an effect. Manual therapy isn't having an effect on the cause of the pain, which might be an inflammatory process. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say with regards to exercise or movement is a moderator of pain, a bit like manual therapy is. So when somebody has knee osteoarthritis and they're asked to do some movement or some exercise, we can see their pain changes. Sometimes it improves, but sometimes it can also increase. It can worsen. So, But that still means that, say, exercise or movement is a moderator of somebody's pain. It hasn't, it's a, not always a direct causal link no. to the pain. No, 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 but it could be. Yeah, so this is where it starts to get a bit confusing now because, yes. again, what we may find is that some interventions do also moderate and mediate other variables. <laughs> Absolutely. At the same time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's say if I if I do an acute bout of exercise, and I'm sure, and, and anyone who wants to listen to this podcast and say, Ben, Adam, you're a pair of fucking idiots, I'm going to explain it much better than you. It'll Please. be some statistical yeah. guru sitting on a mountain somewhere. <laughs> in some in, in, in an, Yeah, in an ivory tower, yeah. rolling around in a grave, turning over, going, oh, my God, they're so they're destroying this. This is so inaccurate. It's not 100% <laughs> technically correct. Yeah, yeah, and I'll be fine with that. But, yeah, so... Let's say, let's say you do exercise for a prolonged period of time and it actually has a adaptive change. So let's say it has an effect on our immune system. Let's say it has effect on our self-efficacy. And these things might be seen as mediators. Or we could do an acute bout of exercise that creates descending inhibition and acts as a moderator. So I think also it depends whether there's an adaptive role of exercise or it's just like an isometric. An isometric would probably be a moderator of pain, wouldn't it? Because you're creating a short bout of exercise that has a, chemi a chemical effect. Whereas prolonged exercise might change the genetic makeup or the epigenetic makeup of the system and might therefore um, create more of a mediator, mediatory change. Yeah. This is where it all gets a little bit confusing and complex. So yeah. something else that I try to, to think about is that can you get something that moderates pain by mediating other variables? So, again, if I use exercise as an example, let's say yeah. we've got somebody with knee osteoarthritis, we yeah. give them some exercise to do. That exercise, as we've already said, acts as a uh, moderator of their pain. But does exercise also have other fa factors which then causes other mediators to affect their pain, such as self-efficacy? Yeah, 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 yeah. So essentially it does both. But I think that maybe the delineating factor is to become a mediator, it may need to be prolonged habit rather than just a single use potentially. But again, we know that some people's expectations and self-efficacy can change really quickly if they're confronted. <laughs> so I don't think time is a factor that much personally. I think, I think again, I think it's complex. I think it depends yeah. on lots of different variables and it's where it all gets confusing. But I think when we're using an intervention such as exercise or manual therapy, which has so many 
mediators has so yeah. many potential, potential mediators. Yeah. It, it's very hard to say what is actually help someone feel less pain. Hundred percent. So if we accept that pain is complex, multifactorial, all of these other things, it's very unlikely that we are likely to find a single mediator for everyone in the world ever. Yeah. That 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 you know. So we and there might be, and I suspect the majority of time we are having multiple moderators and mediators acting at the same time in different percentages in different people. Exactly right. So I think, you know, it's very hard for us to say what is mediating and what is moderating pain yeah. when we use interventions that have lots of potential yes. mediators and moderators. Yeah, and that's it's exactly... Not like, it's not like we're doing a laboratory experiment where we're putting a single chemical into a Petri 100%. dish. 100%, yeah. Which is going to change the variable at the end in that Petri dish because we're controlling everything. Here... Because exercise has so many um, uh, other variables that we can't control, it's very hard for us to say what is mediating yes. or moderating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that um, that you know yes, we, we don't do the exercise. Yeah, well, you're going to have more potential mediating and moderating effects if you actually do it. Probably, yeah. aren't you? I would say. But yeah, I don't don't expect there to just be suddenly be a single mediating factor i think it's always going to be a massive clusterfuck but again i just want to reiterate when we talk about this complexity and we talk about this uncertainty of how these interventions like exercise helps people it sometimes puts people off and think well if we don't understand what's going on we shouldn't use it and it's like no 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 don't don't think like that yeah just because we haven't got certainty exactly how this works we still know this shit helps people yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. We can have these discussions about effect sizes, and they're not great, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. The general population, when you put it into a big bloody trial and everything, but exercise has you know a lot of positive benefits, not just on pain and pathologies, but also other things as well. So I still am an advocate, and it's a hill I'm going to die on, to say everybody that we see with a painful problem, with a disability, should be asked in some shape or form, in some way or other, at some level of intensity, to move and do some bloody exercise or activity. That, I, for me, is a hill I'm prepared to die on. Well, do you know why you're going to die on that hill? Because the manual therapists are going to kill you. Somebody's going to shoot <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. So I'm probably going to get shot on that hill. But, yeah. exactly. so, but You're going to get again, ambushed. Just because there's uncertainty in how things... But, but the same could be said, and I'm sure there's people screaming at the television screen now or listening to the podcast and the guy going, yes, but the same thing's true for manual therapy as it is for exercise. Yes. We've got lots of uncertainty about how the press and the pressing and the poking helps people but we should still use it just like exercise so i can hear you from here people right so sit down wind your necks in chill out a little bit all right i hear you the difference is with manual therapy somebody else often has to do it to somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a time for cost yeah and there's a time there's a cost of time there's a time of all the other variable uh, doesn't affect cardiovascular that health. It doesn't have. It's easily to be done independently. Yeah. It doesn't cost as much as manual therapy. No, and it doesn't affect cardiovascular health. It doesn't affect lifestyle. It doesn't affect obesity, does it? Any of these things. Exactly so. right. So, you know, yes, I understand the argument about the uncertainty of manual therapy, and I understand that, yes, it can help people and it has some effects on some, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just still not. An intervention that I think you can hold a candle to, like 
um, exercise. Well, I saw this morning, just one small point, I saw this morning someone post up about lifestyle interventions and it's important to, you know, for painful problems, lifestyle interventions are important, you know, health and all these other things. And they're, they're exactly the same people who are moaning about the small effect sizes of exercise. So, no, no, do you know when you just think, you're saying, you, you, you just be, you know, that, that you're just, that makes no fucking sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you would, you know, just, to, you know, lifestyle is so important. If exercise is for exercise, it just seems contradictory. But yeah, there yeah. you go. Fuck it. Um, so last one, and this is from Porter Brown. Um, what a name that is. That's a good I know. Name. I know. I, I'm, I'm going to take a, a punt in the dark and say I reckon that is an American name. Yes, I would agree. And I think it is. Uh, he is an American gentleman, absolutely. Porter Brown. That sounds like a good beer brand. Well, you certainly a porter is a type of beer, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. But a porter brown sounds like a good brand of a good beer that I would like yeah. to go and drink. A good brown porter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Would you just look into his eyes longingly, waiting to tr drink his foamy head? <laughs> Where are you going with that? Yeah. <laughs> right. He, what's his question anyway? Right. What's his question? He is asking about group treatments. And um, implementing movement-based approaches uh, at a kind of a group level. So not just individual treatment, but a group-based level. Um, and he's asking, what are your thoughts on group therapy for most MSK conditions? Great question. And I think that's sort of linked in with the other question that we've talked about with mediators and moderators. Is, ah, very I good. Think, I think with some people, that one-to-one -one factor of seeing somebody where your attention is solely dictated and directed to them I think is probably a factor that helps people feel better and so I think when people sometimes have that one-to-one -one environment feeling like they're being taken more seriously looked at more closely being given more specificity of exercises and things to do with all the 110 micro corrections and all this sort of yeah, stuff yeah. that can matter to some patients and that can absolutely help their outcomes um hugely yeah uh, and then there's others that say that you know if they're put into a group they they will feel a bit hard done by they'll feel like they've been washed under the carpet they'll feel yeah. like they've just been not taken seriously or effectively and so that thing can have a detrimental effect on their outcomes but then the other side of the coin there's people that love working in group yes. classes and group classes can have lots of other beneficial factors you know i think sometimes putting people with similar conditions together helps because they start to talk and share experiences yeah. and share stories about what they've been through and it helps people realize they're not on their own and if they can see people at different time factors within the same pathologies or the same conditions you know someone that's six months further down the line from where they are and they can see they're much better than them that, that absolutely is a huge positive benefit for group work as well so like anything, there is no yes or no answer here. There's no right or wrong. I think group work's positive for some, but can also be a little bit negative for others. Yeah, so look, if we look at things like self-efficacy theory, uh, vicarious experience, which is looking at other people around you, seeing how well they're doing, people that look like you might have a similar condition or a similar problem, is part of self-efficacy. So, so that's really positive and important. If we look at chronic pain, we see social isolation 
has a big effect on people's level of pain. Um, so I, I think there are some really, really great examples of when a group setting can provide a huge amount of benefit to the right people. Now, one of the problems I think is, you know, whether you're a physio or a chiro or an osteo or whatever, sometimes I think people see group exercise as something that they can't control. Do you know what I mean? They're not providing the yeah. dosage. And then and, and I think they're worried that it will flare someone up and, you know, these type of things. So I get the concern, but I also think the risk is often really, for the right patient, is outweighed by the benefit. And I think that, you know, that when you look at groups with, you know, chronic pain groups or back class groups or just, you know, any kind of social grouping with exercise, the benefits people can get from that are absolutely huge. And not just with painful problems, but just overall engagement with movement. You know, there's... Um, there's the element of, you know, uh, compet competition sometimes for some people, element of accountability, element of building relationships, not wanting to let other people down. So I totally hear you that for some people, it's not their jam. It's not their bag. Working with others isn't their thing. But then for other people, thrive on. Like, I don't like going to the gym. I went and played tennis this morning, which is a group activity. Yesterday, I went boxing. You know, the boxing club's always full of different people. You can spar and do pads. And, and for me, the social aspect of moving has always been a really, really big part of my continued engagement in it. Um, so I'm going to say, you know, I'm really going to go with Adam here, which I hate doing. It makes me feel a bit like and weird. Don't lie. You do it more often than you like to admit. Yeah, well, I, I just won't admit to it, all right? <laughs> um, so so I'm going to say that, that I think there, there are a subgroup of people maybe that don't benefit, that like the one-to-one -one care, et cetera. But I think there's a huge swathe of especially maybe older people and younger people, people with less self-efficacy, lower income sometimes, that hugely benefit from that group environment. And I think we often don't see it as rehab, we don't see it as as medical enough or as uh, as serious enough as sets and reps and loading and individualization and and this stuff. But I think the benefits are fucking huge for the right person. Yeah, and and I think you know the main thing is is that if you are going to use group work, try to group people together who have got similar pathologies, Absolutely. similar ages, similar capabilities. Yeah, because I think that works better than putting in a rather big mixed heterogeneous, I'm using big fancy words like you. Fuck. Using big mixed, mixed heterogeneous uh, problems and populations, I think, doesn't get the same sort oh. of interaction and, and shared benefits from... Yeah, it's like, you know, think about tennis. You put a, a great player against a beginner. Yeah, it's not going to work. Boxing, you put a really experienced yeah. boxer in with someone who's new. It's just I'm not thinking, work. you know, somebody who's got knee pain because they've just had an ACL reconstruction into a group class with somebody who's got knee pain because they've just had a total knee replacement. Yeah, or they've had something like that. I don't. I don't think that type of group work works very well because normally they're going to be doing different types of things. So it's hard for the the person, the clinician to actually control and organize because you're not going to get the same exercises after a knee replacement being done by somebody with an ACL, yeah. different ages, different populations, maybe not getting the same sort of... Uh, yeah, it, yeah, and that's a great point there because if you think about, you know, that TKR group, um, total knee replacement group, they're probably going to be a similar age, aren't they? Yeah. You know, they're probably have just... They've all come out of surgery. 
Um, so, so they are probably going to be the perfect people to group in together. With an ACL injury, you're probably not going to get the numbers. They may come from a number of different sports. Yeah, you, you know, so timelines. Some may be two weeks out of surgery. Some may be two months out of surgery. Hundred percent. Need to do drop landings. Others just need to be doing in arranged quads to begin with. So yeah, yeah you got to say you've got to think about the organizational aspect of it for you as a clinician as well. Yeah. You know, not just about the benefits for the patients, but the benefits for the person actually trying to run the bloody course. If you're running around a blue ass fucking fly for an hour, going from 20 different people trying to sort everything out, it's confusing, it's hard work. Yeah. And you'll burn yourself out as well. So some yeah. people think group classes are easier to do as a clinician. And having done a good few of them myself, so if they're poorly organized and they've got different people from over the stuff, they can be bloody hard work. Yeah, yeah. And I think that when I've done group part classes in the past, you know, um, I you have to also enjoy them a little bit, I think, as a person, you know. I think I don't think they are for everyone to to do. No, you know, some people you've got to be a sort you've got to be somebody that's quite happy to be in front of a group of persons. Yeah, exactly. The likes of you and me are used to teaching and standing up in front of people, multiple people and talking and say it's a different skill set and it takes yeah. a bit more ego is probably the word I'm looking for. I was gonna say oh, I have no ego. I'm gonna say probably a bit more ego, confidence and yeah, uh, yeah, other yeah. skills to be able to do group work than it is one to one work. Yeah. I am completely egoless. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> you are just humble and uh, oh, you know, yeah, to, to the point of embarrassment. Actually, I find yeah. your humility is uh, oh. yeah, it's awkward, mate. It really doesn't like the, feel awkward. How how humble and uh, sometimes less. you know, I, I I think I actually make the Dalai Lama look egotistical. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, look, I think they were. Three really good questions um, from some different people this month, um, which is really nice to see. So um, next month, you know, please, we want to see more questions from more members. Community is our big thing at the BCP. You don't get that with any of these other uh, platforms, Mr. Meekins, do you? No, you just get 12 research reviews that you've got to read or you go and watch a masterclass where somebody's pontificating on about Inner range quads may be beneficial for people with patellofemoral pain because of a paper back in 1983 was conducted by blah, 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 snooze fest. So yeah, no, yeah. We, we don't do any of that shit with our continuing education. No, absolutely not. Um, so until next month, adieu. Adios, amigos. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the BCP podcast. If you would like to check out the BCP, please go to www.betterclinicianproject.com. There we have literally hundreds of videos on clinical topics, exercise examples for rehabilitation and research reviews alongside features such as Thoughtful Thursday. And please tune in again.